Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll find the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And now, here is your host, the CEO of Axis Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, the original media maven herself, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, and your host for today's Media Maven podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirate, who's in public affairs and a sportscaster. Hi, Joe. Hello, Sarah. We've got ourselves a big, big show today and another international person that we're talking to. First, it was <laughs> Ralph Simon, and now today it's retired U.S. Army Chief Warrant Officer, Scott Kirtley. And believe it or not, he is a U of A Wildcat alum. And also, he used to live in Arizona. He actually worked for the governor of Arizona. So, Scott, we'd like to welcome you aboard to this uh, podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me here and bear down, of course. I feel outnumbered being a sun devil, but it's okay because, you know, (laughs) we're going to keep moving anyways. Okay, so, Scott, you got such a tremendous bio. First, I think Joe and I definitely, for everybody here in the U.S., want to thank you for your time because you've put so much into the Army and counterintelligence, keeping us safe every day. So we do want to thank you because that was a tremendous work and stress, but we are glad you made it here with us and you're over in Germany now. So tell us, what is a warrant officer? I get the counterintelligence, but tell us what that means, what you're working on and how you ended up in Germany. Sure. And each service, and thank you very much. uh, And it's great to to be taking part in all this. Each service of the military and and the Coast Guard as well have a core of what they call warrant officers. And these are the technicians of the military. They're the, I would say the knowledge foundation for the military. Our joke amongst those of us in the warrant officer core was that we were neither celestial nor temporal. We, most of us came out of the enlisted ranks. So most of us had joined as privates and made our way up to the sergeant ranks. In the Army, it's a little bit different from the other services in that they actually become commissioned officers. So they they have the same authorities as like a lieutenant, captain, uh, major, colonel, and and so on. But they they used to get very angry (laughs) when we were in like the warrant officer training programs because enlisted folks and some in the in the what we call regular line officer corps would refer to us as the in-between ranks and we weren't in between we actually had the same authorities and when i was going through the warrant officer advanced course about 15 years ago now about 17 years ago now they were actually talking about maybe doing away with the corps the air force had done away with theirs we call ourselves we who are walking warrants so you have flight warrants, and then you have what we call walking warrants, the ones who are not pilots. We tend to call ourselves, one after you make the your second warrant officer rank, and they go from warrant officer one, two, three, four, and five, when you hit uh, chief warrant officer two, well, you actually become a chief at warrant officer two, and then we refer to ourselves as chief. So I would go by chief curtly. However, for any Navy veterans or Coast Guard veterans out there, the word chief has an entirely different connotation that instead of having sergeants or first sergeants or gunnery sergeants, they have chief petty officers. And then there's all kinds of gradations of chief petty officer and and everything else. And I've actually served with Navy warrant officers and 
one guy was named was chief warrant officer to Kirby. So in whatever administrative thing, he would come before me and the army guy would be calling off the roll and he'd go, chief Kirby. He goes, no, no, I'm a Navy warrant officer. You don't call me chief. <laughs> call me, call me Mr. Kirby or call me warrant officer Kirby or a warrant Kirby or something. And they go, okay, Mr. Kurt, they go, no, no. I'm an army chief warrant officer. You call me chief and it throws everybody off. And the only depiction I can think of in, in popular culture was the John Travolta movie, the general's daughter oh, yeah. where he played, he played actually a uh, CID, a criminal investigations division warrant officer. And they got into a big discussion about how a warrant officer is different from regular officers and all that, or regular line officers. The most I would say the most notable warrant officer in U.S. military history was uh, Chief Warrant Officer Two, Hugh Thompson, and he was. If you if you Google him, he died a few years back. He was the only Army hero at the ba- or that battle at the massacre at My Lai. That he was the warrant officer who put his helicopter between the U.S. soldiers who were massacring civilians horribly. He saw it from the air and he put his helicopter in between the in between the civilians and the and the the soldiers and you know said, "Take one step forward, and my gunners, my my door gunners are going to take you out first." And then was actually um, critical in the court martial of those soldiers. Yeah, and so he's we hold him up in the army as like the the guy who put his values above, you know, the peer pressure that he would have faced, that he did face to just sort of go along and, and cover the thing up. So yeah, yeah great warrant officers out there in history. And I'm, I'm just kind of glad that I was, or proud that I was able to kind of count yeah. myself amongst them. So we're just going to go with chief. We're just going to call you chief. <laughs> yes, that big, long explanation so you can go, <laughs> so, go with so, chief. <laughs> so, so let's talk chief. You're over in Germany. Yeah. And you, know, you can't talk about your, what you're currently doing. We want to respect that in the government. Yeah. But I noticed you just ended chief intelligent office of homeland security investigations and reorganized some stuff there i want to kind of take us through the timeline sure. you got two very big parts of your past right now that we want to cover in this podcast tell us about what you did for homeland security because i know that's a big deal with what goes on in the world with terrorism <laughs> yeah. and people being stopped and everybody leans on home i mean there's so many facets of what you've done that's critical to keeping the world safe but let's start with homeland security since you just ended your tenure with them sure absolutely and i began with homeland security in 2012 and maybe we can go back and talk about how I ended up with them, but decided to, to make that move. I had two of my three daughters were in Arizona at the time, one going to uh, Arizona State, nice. unfortunately. Mm. And well, then the other one, the other one was still the in podcast. high school. <laughs> yeah. The other one was still in high school and um, getting ready to go to U of A, actually. And so there was a job opportunity in Phoenix. I took that job opportunity and I took it primarily because I really wanted to get into the realm of Homeland Security. And I was really impressed by the uh, the mission set that they had, that human smuggling, human trafficking. They also have a very robust counter-narcotics uh, mission. They are now leading the way in, a, in cyber crime and, and actually working against things like oh, cryptocurrency that criminals use and that kind of thing. Really exciting things. I went to Arizona and got to work. I actually became the 
Mexican cartel expert for the, the Phoenix special agent in charge office for the time that I was there. As my daughters, one graduated, went on to, to law school, and the, the daughter in, at U of A was, was now moving along, and she is now actually at the police academy in Nashville, Tennessee. And decided, well, the kids are grown, they're, they're moving away, so I'll, I'll uh, see what other opportunities are out there. And I was able to, to garner a, a promotion to become the chief intelligence officer for Homeland Security Investigations in the greater New York area. This, I was out of the Newark, New Jersey office. And that was, that was a great opportunity. And one thing I learned was in the Department of Homeland Security, and this is getting a lot of discussion right now. In fact, I was just listening to the Lawfare podcast today, and they were talking about the role of intelligence in a homeland security setting. And that's where we start getting into the things you're talking about, about the federal officers that are now being pulled to go do these protection details for for federal property in places like Portland. And I, I don't think there is a lot of federal property in Kenosha, Wisconsin, but there in these major U.S. cities, there, there are federal buildings and things. And there is a mandate from the federal government, usually the marshal service or some other part that of Homeland Security that's tasked with that, but they will pull folks from the other components of Homeland Security to go take part in this. I, I, I really appreciated the time that I was there, met some really great people. But what I found was that from an intelligence standpoint, that is a really difficult nut to crack. And here I had spent an entire career looking at foreign adversaries primarily. And I was still doing a lot of that with Homeland Security. But you have a law enforcement agency that was very inwardly focused and had no tradition of an actual intelligence arm. And probably that's not, that's not really a ding on them. It's just how do you integrate an intelligence apparatus without becoming the KGB, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> we have a, a very strict tradition of civil rights, of constitutional rights, and trying to make sure that, that those things aren't violated. And so there are a lot of protections that you have to roll into that. There was a lot of resistance on the part of, I would say, some in the leadership in DHS, not that they didn't want to do those things. It was just, that was, that was a really hard thing to try and integrate into it. And so uh, what I felt was that they really didn't know how to, how to really deal with an intelligence arm and the kind of, the kind of challenges just weren't worth pursuing too far. Now they are doing some great things in counter narcotics, in counter human trafficking, in counter human smuggling. And it's like I said, they, they of all the federal agencies, I believe kind of lead the way on the combating cryptocurrency and cyber crime and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's so funny because we have a guest coming on next that's in the cyberspace. And I, ah. so I know you said you want to kind of back up a little leading into this, but so does this, did you end up going into Homeland Security because your past job or your previous job, if I'm not correct, you were in counterintelligence for a narcotics down in Columbia and Honduras going ah. after the FARC. And I, I, and I know what the um, FARC is um, and the armed force because I spent two weeks down in Columbia uh, with a documentary person and I was in Honduras, been all over there. So yeah. did you, did, did that being down there, because that's a pretty 
badass. I can't say job doing that. Did that push you into coming back to Homeland and then back to Germany or was it the reverse? I mean, how did you end up going from counterintelligence and narcotics down in Colombia against revolutionary army to this? I mean, there's a big gap there that I'm so intrigued with right now. Yeah. See if I can give you the three minute history of this whole thing. So I was, I was actually, and uh, Joe may remember these days, I was an associate state school superintendent, believe it or not, in Mm -hmm. Arizona uh, in the 2001 to 2003. And my boss, again, lost a primary election to a guy named Tom Horn. Mm -hmm. If you remember those days. Yeah. So I was actually out out of a job and was getting ready to go start something else in the business world. And I got called back to, so I was a reserve officer teaching at Fort Huachuca, you know, doing weekends in the two week stint. And this was all post 9-11. I got called back to active duty. And what was I, I, I thought I was getting called back because we we're just getting ready to do the invasion of Iraq. I was then told after I'd been at Fort Huachuca for a few months that I was going to get pulled to for Afghanistan. And a couple of days before I received my orders for Afghanistan, a guy calls me from the Pentagon and says, I got a real weird question for you, chief. Any chance you speak Spanish? And I'm thinking, okay, well, there's probably no downside. And I had been a Spanish teacher. I taught Spanish in high school. I've got my master's from U of A is in Latin American studies. And uh, so yo puedo hablar español más o menos bastante bien. So, um, <laughs> so I can speak Spanish. I can speak Spanish pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, hey, I need, I need military advisors in Colombia as a part of Plan Colombia, sort of the action part of Plan Colombia. So I, instead of going to Afghanistan, I went to Colombia to become an advisor to the Colombian military in the effort against the FARC during what was called the armed conflict down there. And so I spent about a year and a half in the field with the Colombian military. And I was hired by U.S. Southern Command as an intelligence analyst right out of the field. So I started in 2005. I started working for Southern Command in Miami on the Columbia team on the, in the Columbia division. That time we had three U.S. hostages that were being held in Columbia. They didn't get released until J- July of 2008. So they spent five and a half years in captivity. We worked that problem set. We worked now we worked at a strategic level, the kind of stuff I was doing at a tactical level down, down there against the FARC. And then coming out of out of Southern Command, I spent about three years there, almost to the day, three years. And I got offered a position with the with the Joint Interagency Task Force South, which is a subcomponent of Southern Command. They're down in Key West, and I was able to work on the country team in Honduras. And it really was just a, an offshoot or a branch or a sequel of everything that was going on in Colombia because it was the cocaine coming up from Colombia, usually by boats, through Honduras on its way up to the market in the United States. So I worked with the DEA there, worked with worked with HSI, with Homeland Security Investigations, for the first time, and I started learning a little bit about DHS. So that's kind of how I became exposed to that. We did some, we did some really great work down there, but the most interesting thing was that I was in Honduras when the military opted to, let's say, do an extra constitutional change of leadership. We don't use the C word down there, but it was an extra constitutional change of leadership in June of 2009, and I was stuck right in the middle of that. And that was an incredible period of time when you had riots, little riots in the street, 
demonstrations out in front of the embassy. They breached the embassy walls a couple of times. So we didn't quite get to the scene from the, the Ben Affleck movie that you know showed the, the Iranian hostage crisis there. But we thought we were on the precipice of that. Made it through all of that. And they then wasn't really a promotion, but it was sort of like a lateral, maybe half step up, up position. They moved me to the same team, but in Cartagena, Colombia. And this is where all of the drug cases were being worked. So I worked very closely with um, DEA uh, and HSI again there, and then with the Colombians uh, as well. And in fact, I guess if anybody's interested, I believe Netflix is now carrying the Nat Geo series Narco Wars. Yeah. And there, there's an episode about the uh, narco submarines and those cases were being worked by the DEA there. And you know, some, of the, some of the folks you see in there are people I work with yeah. every day. What's really interesting yeah. is that because we were down in Bogota and um, Cartagena. It's, Cartagena mm. is beautiful, the Wall Street. Oh, it is wonderful. So when, yeah. so we were down in Bogota. It's weird because I know what you're saying. You know, I mean, that's where, I mean, we all saw um, Narcos. I mean, we all watch all this up on Netflix. Yeah. But yeah. when we were down in Bogota, I mean, I never felt... And that's what the girlfriend of mine who went to U of A, I never fell and she worked for the government. So we were already limited. Like I always wanted to go to Cuba, but she was never allowed because she would have right. longer trips. And it was interesting. I never, ever felt unsafe down in Columbia at all. I mean, I loved it down there, but it was weird because, you know, you just walk around the corner and we were near the palace, presidential palace. And there was, mm-hmm. you know, federalities arresting people pulling bags of cocaine in their pockets, looking out my hotel window. I'm like, oh, another cocaine bus. Like, you don't really think it through. Sure. This is expected down there. And I don't want to, I don't want to ask this question, but I do. I know you can't say what was the highlight or what was the great thing that came out of that because we still have a drug problem. We still have, you know, illegal arm dealing, drugs, cocaine. We still have all these horrible things that plague us, you know, every day. But is there anything part of all of that that you feel changed or bettered because of your work down there? Well, I did, you know, I, I played a very small part in all of this, in, in all of it, but there were a lot of big things that we were working on that, that really had some great success. Those three American hostages that being rescued along with a slew of military and political hostages who had been held for a number of years. There's one guy who had been held for about nine years when that, or maybe even 10 years went, you know, to, and in the jungle, I've, I've lived in those jungle conditions. I, under the best of circumstances, I can only imagine what it'd be like to be held hostage in that. So the freeing of the hostages, the the United States really helped the Colombian government, the military to overcome the challenges of the armed conflict. Did we solve everything? No. And that's one thing you mentioned the show Narcos, that that's, that show does a really good job of showing, you know, all the great things we can do to take out an adversary organizationally, but it, you can take out an adversary organizationally. And if in this case, narcotics, if the narcotics are still there, if the narcotics are still there and the market for those narcotics still exists, somebody's going to pick it up and make the money off of it because they're basically they think they're crazy not to. It's if you haven't fixed the underlying problems, then the new problems are just going to grow out of that. And so we, and by this I see, I say we, the United States and our Colombian partners, were very good about decapitating the leadership of not and not just the guerrillas, but also the the narcotics cart, you know, the the cartels. It gets depicted very well in the in the show Narcos, and then also some of the other organizations that grew up in their place, but 
all you succeed in doing a lot of times is now you're you've now made the problem different. I won't say worse, but now you've got instead of three big organizations who are running everything, now you've got a hundred organizations running everything. And then outsiders, in this case, the Mexican cartels will come in and sort of take over the management of that business. So the production still production still happens, but somebody else is now managing getting it out to the market. It, it, it kind of like, it kind of, it's may not be a really good parallel comparison to like terrorism. Pablo Escobar, obviously, you know, that he was one of the largest legends in, you know, drug dealing cartels. Yeah. But he also had his son after you've seen of Narcos, for anybody who doesn't know the history of drug running down in Colombia and what's going on, his son took over. So there's all these cells and branches that you guys hit, you know, you got the nucleus, but there's so many other people, like you said, that are now branching off to doing it. So the problem's still there. The problem's still on the rise. I guess it's a controlled chaos that you guys try to keep it controlled, but I, I know it's, it's ongoing. I mean, it's always problem today. Yeah, I mean, when it came to um, the thing I'm proud of is that we helped solve problems, the problems that were brought to us and said, okay, here's the problem set. Here's how we see your role in solving those. We accomplish those missions. And by, again, by we, I mean big U.S. government. Yeah. And the heavy lifting was done by the Colombians and some incredible, I've met and still have a lot of friends who are there. When you talk about heroes, they're true heroes. They sacrificed in ways that one can't even imagine for the effort that they, they made down there. So we were able to accomplish the mission that was handed to us and I think accomplish it, it honorably. What, I, I, what makes me sad is a lot of people kind of forget the efforts that we made in Colombia. This was, and if you follow any of that of where Plan Colombia was coming from, that was actually something concoct, concocted by the government of Colombia with the Clinton administration. The Clinton administration had an all Republican, so a Democratic administration with an all Republican Congress worked together to come up with that plan, came up with steps that they needed to take prior to being able to take action. Clinton administration wanted to make sure that it stayed a very counter-narcotics war. And the Bush administration came in and said, well, you know what? You can't really take the, the narcotics from the terrorism and the terrorism from the narcotics. They're all one and the same. And that's actually where more robust military support which I was a part of. Again, I was I wasn't like your guys in Narcos, by the way. You know, busting down doors and stuff. I was advising Columbia military units prior to their their taking action and engaging in operations. But that was an example of how we could take U.S. aid and then help a partner to develop its capabilities to then solve its own problems. And what what makes me sad is that Iraq. And then in later years, now Afghanistan, just because Afghanistan just keeps going on and on and on and on. So people don't look at what we did. They, they forget that what, what we did. We said, we're going to start this program and it is going to end at this date. And by that date, it ended. So by 2010, July of 2010, the last of the U.S. military advisors like me were gone. I, you know, I left in 2005 in, from the, in that role. But the actual military advisors were gone by 2010. And so we were able to say, we're going to do this thing. Here's the time frame we're going to do it. And this is what success looks like. And then leave. And we left. That's what I think others would like to see happen with some of these other things. Because what we were at, we were advising in counterterrorism issues as well. It's just you couldn't separate the, the terrorism from the narcotics. 
Let me ask you, uh, Scott, how much, when we took, take a look at the drug trade through Colombia and everything, how much of the product comes into the United States and how much goes elsewhere? Sure. The UNODC, the United Nations Office for Drugs and Crime, I believe is what that stands for. But UNODC, you could Google it. They're the ones who put out the, the best studies each year on what the drug market looks like, where the drugs are coming from, where they're going to. So the United States remains, by and large, the biggest consumer of the narcotics coming out of South America for cocaine. And there's also some some heroin that comes out of the Andes. Uh, a lot of heroin also comes out of Mexico. And now the Mexicans now are moving towards fentanyl production. And now fentanyl has become this the public health crisis up in the United States as well. But because the peace agreement brought a relaxation of Colombian military force in the hinterlands of Colombia, cocaine production is now at an all-time high. They're pretty much saturating the market, pre-COVID anyway, saturating the market with everything the U.S. market needs. And so Europe has become a much bigger not bigger, but a much more profitable target for that cocaine trade. I think socially, it's not as looked down upon to use those those kind of recreational narcotics. And because it is so hard to get that kind of a product to this kind of a market in the developed world, like like Central and Northern Europe, the amount you're going to get per kilo is far, far higher, sometimes double what you'd see they can get in the States. Although I hear with COVID, and there is a UNODC uh, report that came out a few months ago on the effect of COVID on the on the narcotics trade worldwide. And the result of the pandemic and all of the restrictions has been that the price of cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and fentanyl has now more than doubled in some places, in- including in the United States. Wow. That's very interesting. Going back to your days here in Arizona, I noticed yeah. that you were an advisor to the governor. Yes, as well, well Which, an aide to the governor's probably. Aide to the governor. Yeah. I think that's where I remember you from, working Uh-oh. in Pinal County. I think I remember working with the governor's office on something. And I, I kind of, when I saw your name up there, I'm like, I know that name from somewhere. And I think that's <laughs> where I got it from. But talk about what, what kind of things you did as a governor's aide and then also so, in the school department. Yeah, so that one was that was kind of a strange period. I was actually a grad student at University of Arizona and was let's just say much more politically active than the, than partisanly politically active in those days than I am now. And I was actually working on the campaign of Congressman Jim Colby. You have such a tremendous background in politics which is as obvious why you went from the politics, moved up through government, federal to homeland, and to narcotics and counterintelligence. So it seemed like you had a really good trajectory planned out for you back when you ran for legislation. But getting back to, I mean, every state has its problems, good and bad, politics, you know, and everything. But right now we are dealing with the pandemic. You know, oh, yeah. states are shut down. I know Arizona, and not to get into politicals, Joe, but I know, good and bad on Governor Busey, you know, didn't take it seriously, shut it down, back open, California shut down, back open, shut down. The concern, I think, is given what's going on in the universe with this pandemic and all the chaos, you made a comment, the drug rates 
for drugs is higher than normal and the cost. Do you think this pandemic's going to fuel, I I, want to say terrorism and drugs, I know it's all kind of related on counterintelligence. Do you think that's a bigger concern or do you think it's a time where you guys, they could get control or ahead of this because the pandemic? Uh, I think the ability of of any government to devote additional resources to try and get ahead of something like this is going to be really hard when so many other resources are being are being diverted necessarily for to fighting the pandemic. I think again this I'm not speaking for the government or anything else, but I would think that in these sorts of situations you've got people who are under a lot of stress breadwinners who probably have to try and do more with less. It's when people are depressed, that's uh, an open invitation for getting involved in things like illegal narcotics. The market that existed prior to the pandemic still exists after the pandemic. The, The traffic that goes through ports is slowed down considerably, which means it's much harder for, just like it's harder for legal goods to make it to market. It's equally, if not harder for illicit goods to make it to their markets. And so people will look for alternatives. And that's actually what um, I think the UNODC and then and maybe the DEA and some others have released statements or studies showing the, the danger of things like the synthetic drugs like fentanyl really now making a surge because it's cheaper. You need a far lower dose to achieve the high or the you know, whatever dosage you need just to get by to beat, to beat withdrawal. And so I just don't see any, any real good progress being made. And anybody who studied economics, and I did study a little bit of economics at the University of Arizona, you know, go wildcats bear down. But if, if you're able to cut back on the supply of something that remains in high demand, the person or the people you're helping are the suppliers because the cost will go up and the suppliers can essentially write whatever the price they want it to be. I I always thought it'd be the opposite because I know we've had the rights here. I I think you guys are pretty safe in Germany. I mean, I think our rights, and I know Joe will correct me if I'm wrong, we're all pretty much political around Black Lives Matters and just people Mm -hmm. were just crazed from being home in this pandemic because nobody knew how to handle a central pandemic when we're so modern. And I know a lot of the Arm, not the armed guards, what's the right term? Who are they came here? I, I guess the armed guards, reserves to keep the city down. We had oh, I, the National Guard, the National we Guard. We saw yeah. tanks all over LA. I mean, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. I know they're in Portland. So I assume the states were taking our services, pandemics to keep people safe, protected, sort of pull them away from the ports and stuff and slowing them down. I always assume that that was a more of a easier in for these guys to get their illicit drugs and counterfeit stuff in because things are quiet because our people are down, hunkering down. U.S. is the number one country of COVID cases. So if it's slowing them down, I would assume that opens a floodgate, terrorism, drugs, everything to get a little bit more creative. I mean, that was just the way my mind was thinking, but I wasn't sure if that was the case because there was a big bust. Somebody got on the dark web, some big, one of the largest, not Silk Road, another big drug running company finally got caught. They caught up with them on the dark web. Such a huge bust mm-hmm. for them because yeah. they were taking advantage of the pandemic and they sped up the process. 
Sure. And that's uh, so when we were talking about Homeland Security earlier and the, the expertise that Homeland Security has, it's it's dealing with dark web crime, dark web based crime and cyber crime that that they really excel, that they're really, really good at. And so a lot of those kind of cases and busts, in a lot of ways, they're even ahead of like the FBI, who's also very, very, you know, expert in, in those sorts of uh, investigations. But right now, as the world is kind of feeling the pinch, the, narc- the narco traffickers feel the pinch as well, but business is business. The product still needs to get out and the market still awaits. And so it will get out there one way or the other. Yeah. Now you're in Germany. Was Did you end up in Germany because of all of your work with counter uh, counter narcotics and intelligence or is this a choice? It was, well, it's kind of a, kind of all of the above that I was living in, uh, living in New Jersey in, in a great little town called New Providence, just absolutely loved New Jersey, loved living in the greater New York area. We lived right along New Jersey transit route so we could get on the train and be in Man- downtown Man- or midtown Manhattan in about 40 minutes spend all day there and then come back home. So we could go enjoy New York without having to stay in New York, which is awesome. The food around New Jersey is absolutely incredible. I have a weakness for New Jersey diners. But I had a friend who was over here working for one of the other commands who said, hey, you know, there's some there's some job opportunities coming here and you've got the experience that they they, they really would like. And I, I saw it and was thinking, you know, I, I really miss living overseas because I had lived overseas really from about 2003 till about 2012. And from 2012 to 2018, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give, the, give the States a chance again and really missed overseas living and overseas work. And it's been great. And then the pandemic hit and we've been telling ourselves, well, we really got lucky to, to be in Europe when all this is going down. So. So, oh my God, so it's like, I feel like we could talk forever about intelligence. <laughs> I think I have so many more questions that are yeah. like all about that. I think we would love to have you back on to talk about this again with us. But, you know, we normally ask our guests, how do people find you if they want to reach out? But given we can't reveal what you're doing right now and for safety, yeah. I'm not going to ask, um, sure. but, you know, a tremendous job you're doing, keeping us safe, keeping you know, drugs out, keeping everybody where they should be. And I so appreciate all of that work you've been doing. And I know, um, hopefully we could talk about what you're working on now in vain of that in six months or down the road. But sure. um, <laughs> seriously, I know it's getting late in Germany time. Scott, tremendous job. Thank you. Um, oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Anything? Well, just the, yeah. be safe. Don't do drugs. Oh, all of that, of course. And I wish it was merely that simple. I think I'll, le- I'll leave you with is that I am, I am just a super, super, super small part of all of these things that, that there are people far braver, far more inventive, far more industrious than I am and far smarter than I am who work on these things every day. And that I know people are kind of at each other's throats in the States right now. But, you know, I've got a daughter who's about to become a policewoman. I've got two daughters who are attorneys now that I think 
people in the States, especially, I, I am saddened when they think that it's the end of the world or if somebody, if I disagree with somebody, you're not just wrong, you're evil, that it's not that way at all, that if people come from different perspectives, we'll kind of listen to one another. I think that they'll, they'll find they have much, much more in common. And things like the security and safety of the United States is important to, to everybody. And that's, that's really what I, I hope everybody kind of takes away with, with things. You know, we, take, yeah. we take an oath to the Constitution, and that really means something. And there are a lot of people out there, men and women, very young men and women, who, who are dedicating themselves to that. And I think it's, it, it's important for us to keep them in our hearts and our minds all the time. You know, I, I think everybody's a hero. You know what they say, you know, t- teamwork makes the dream work. So I yeah. think everybody's just equally as important that, you know, to keep us safe and what you do. Um, we are going to love to have you back. So we okay. definitely have <laughs> Scott Curtley back with us, everyone. But this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment with my co-host, Joe Pirate with Media Mavens Podcast. And we'll tune in and see you guys again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or you want to find past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.